This is Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Elise Jordan along with Steve Schmidt. Our goal here is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and they have consequences. In this episode, we will explore the questions, how did we arrive at this political moment? Can the Republican Party and the conservative movement survive Trumpism? If the GOP survives, what does it look like and who leads it? And if not, what comes next? From 1966 to 1999, the founder of the National Review and the patron saint of American conservatism, William F. Buckley, hosted Firing Line on PBS. Tonight, from Washington, D.C., Firing Line, with William F. Buckley, Jr. Tonight's guest, Barry Goldwater. Tonight's topic, the future of conservatism. My guest today is a gentleman from Arizona who didn't quite almost become president of the United States, but the next thing uh, to it, if you follow me, he is indisputably the best known and perhaps for that reason the most maligned conservative in the world. Our next guest recently relaunched that iconic public affairs program. Steve and I are very excited to have here with us today Margaret Hoover who, in addition to being a dear friend and mentor, is the kind of woman that you want on your team and the kind of woman who I think we need at the forefront of remaking the Republican Party. Margaret is a CNN contributor, and in addition to her other works as the author of American Individualism, How a New Generation of Conservatives Can Save the Republican Party. Margaret, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Elise. And I just want to say I stand by every word I wrote in that book six years ago, and all of it has been overtaken by events. Yes. So Margaret, her best-selling book six years ago, American which, Individualism. Which I never even talk about anymore because I still believe every word, but it's totally overtaken by events. Millennials are gone. The Republican Party's gone. The conservative movement's over. Um, but it was a good ride. And the timing of that was at the same time that the GOP conducted an autopsy that said, hey, we need to be nicer to millennials, to women, to minorities, Steve. Uh, we aren't really there anymore. No, we're not. You know, I come out of California politics, and um, I have a philosophy in life that all things, for the good or bad, start in California. And if you look back in political history to 1994, Pete Wilson, the desperate governor of California, behind in his reelection, mortgaged the future of the Republican Party with like a low interest balloon payment. 20 years later, with these ads that show Mexicans coming across the border with racist intonations and the language in the ads, they're coming, they're coming, they keep coming. And four years later, Nicole Wallace, who was the communications director on the governor's race, I'm on the Senate race, watched the Republican Party be blown out. And since that time, the only Republican who's been elected statewide in the state of California is Arnold Schwarzenegger. And so the Republican Party founded in 1854. By 1858 is the majority party in the north and the west of the country. But since its founding, it has been in all of our states, either the majority or the minority party. Last week, 
For the first time since its founding, the Republican Party in one of the American states became the third party, smaller than decline a state in independent registrations, California. The bill has come due fully. So we look out now, millennials, people of color, women, an entire generation, it is as inconceivable for them to vote for a Republican candidate as it would be to, and I don't say this loosely, as a Nazi candidate. Yeah, there are some Nazis trying to run as Republicans. Nine of them, in fact. Nine out-and-out Nazis. And, you know, it's why it's great to have Margaret here today is because she is the heir to one of the great legacies uh, and custodians to one of the great guardians of conservatism, William F. Buckley, who quite famously was able to kick out of the conservative movement and expel from the ranks of the Republican Party – all these whack jobs. He did it to the John Birch Society. He he got all of it out of the conservative movement. And now, these years later, after his death, with Margaret now filling the space that he once occupied, what are we going to do about it? And we aren't setting high expectations or anything. Yeah, right. I know. And I'd like we're to bring back this idea that I am the guardian of William not, Buckley. Not, to, be, um, to be very clear for Chris Buckley, his son who is listening, I fully, fully appreciate that I am not the heir to William F. Buckley's legacy. I have my own Hoover battles to fight, frankly. Um, but I do come to, I do actually come to the project with a bit of reverence for legacy and understanding what that means, just because. Um, I, I fiercely fight for Herbert Hoover's legacy every opportunity I have. Look, look, Buckley cared less about the Republican Party than he did the conservative movement, right? Because he cared about a series of ideas that he was intending to mainstream and earn respect for at a time when there was absolutely no challenge to mainstream liberalism and liberal intellectual elites. And so he did, he, he did this, of course, first by running for mayor in New York on a new party line, the conservative party. And his interest was in helping codify a set of ideas that could then really take leadership or or gain ascendance within the context of the Republican Party. He was proud always to have kicked out extremists, bigots, kooks, anti-Semites, and racists, right? But he could do this at a time when National Review was a main – it was a publication – and a center, sort of a watering hole for conservative intellectuals in the 50s and late 50s, beginning of the 60s. And when you had publications, right, you had a print publication that actually acted as a sort of gravitational pull, almost like a sort of in the solar system, everybody would sort of revolve around some of these key um, sort of anchors to the movement. You then have the ability to self-police, Right. And he had the ability to say, fine, you know, you can be a bigot. You can be a racist. You can be, you just can't publish here. And we've totally lost that ability to self-police our own for fear of the electorate. I think I think what happened with the conservative movement, right, is, you know, there's the Hoffer quote that it becomes first you have an idea and then you have a movement and then you have a business and then you have a racket. Right. And, and we became sort of this commoditized racket um, that was all about sort of selling our project and and. I think through the Reagan years, we had this sort of success, but then the political uh, special interests became too fixated on that one formula and weren't able to be nimble and change according to the times. And so I think you had this sort of uh, calcified movement that didn't have the ability to change or meet the concerns 
of a changing electorate and, frankly, a changing electorate had been affected by a changing global economy. And in many ways, I don't blame um, Donald Trump for latching on to the failures of the conservative movement. I mean, that was the conservative movement's failure to be able to meet the needs of an electorate that um, that, that had been ignored. Uh, and conservatism couldn't answer their questions and couldn't answer their concerns. If Buckley was here today and he read the National Review, would he be proud or would he be appalled or somewhere in the middle? I, you're going way further than I'm willing to go. <laughs> you're going way further than I'm willing to go. Calvin Williamson wrote a really lovely piece about firing line this weekend, so I, I don't want to dish on National Review. I, I do think that, um, you know, the conservative movement, we underestimate how much movements are actually outgrowths of individual leaders and their personalities, right? Buckley was the biggest personality of the conservative movement for the first 25, 30 years. And I think a lot of the movement's, not just success, like all this sort of idiosyncratic elements of the movement really came directly from, you know, Tom comes from the top. It came a lot from Buckley's personality and his willingness to sort of open up the, like, so, do you remember the National Review cover where there's Buckley and Irving Crystal and Buckley's like in a bathtub saying, hey, the water's warm. Come on in. Right. Like because Buckley sort of recognized that like people would come around to him, come to his point of view. Um, he was very open. He was welcoming. He, you know, he the movement is less um, has less of the wonderful characteristics of Buckley's personality. Is there it. is there still a conservative movement in the country or is it so deeply and profoundly corrupted that it's gone. So it depends what you mean by conservative, right? The modern American conservative movement that Buckley brought to the forefront is not ascendant. There are people who still ascribe to it and believe to it. I think 15 or 14 of the candidates in 2016 ascribed to it and call themselves movement conservatives. I think Paul Ryan calls himself still a movement conservative. But I think they've been overtaken by events. I think in Trump's election, there has been mainstreamed a conservative populism that has moved the Republican Party to the right in this sort of nationalist, sort of really like a white nationalist, more sort of economically sort of populist pull. And all these sort of ideas that sort of movement conservatism espoused, frankly, don't stand up to Donald Trump. I mean, Paul Ryan's getting a lot of his agenda through when Donald Trump's not paying attention. But the second Donald Trump pays attention and says, no, 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 actually on trade, we're going to do this instead. Movement conservative loses. So they're, they're, but they call themselves conservatives. I mean, you ask Paul Ryan, he says, oh, well, we've blended approaches, right? But that the, the ideas that Buckley espoused, free trade, immigration, uh, sort of a reaching out to people, none of the ideas that sort of I identified with and came to conservative, like came to the modern American conservative with are sort of the rallying cries in this moment. Well, what I find so interesting about you bringing this show back to life, you had to fundraise on your own. You had to pursue it. You wanted to have a show that was substantive intellectual discourse about conservative ideas. And there's not really anything out there these days considering the direction that Fox News has gone down. Yeah. I mean, I didn't I'm not sure I would say I wanted to sort of bring back conservative conservative ideas necessarily. I um, I think that we're in a new moment in the same way that, you know, Buckley, no question, was a conservative. And he wanted to give voice to these ideas in sort of mainstream 
uh, sort of media in a, in a public way. I actually don't – I'm not here to – to defend conservatism. I'm, I'm here to, to sort of kick the tires and figure out sort of where the new coalitions in politics are and what ideas are going to be ascendant and where the new center of gravity is going to be. And I don't think it's necessary. I think some conservative ideas, I'm, going, I'm certainly going to fight for some conservative ideas. I'm a free trader. I'm a, um, but I'm an individualist when it comes to social policy um, and social issues. But I, there are sort of many ideas that movement conservatism Fiscal conservatism, entitlement reform, all these things should not abandon. And for those, for those, I intend to plant a flag in the sand. But I'm, I'm not convinced that the alchemy of the modern American conservative movement is the one that um, that is going to be successful politically. Politics aside, I think where there, there are new opportunities, which Steve alluded to at the top of the show, for building new um, coalitions. I think in politics, I think. California, while it may have just surpassed Republicans in independent registration, New York is not far behind. Um, and and as I understand it, there are political operations in play now that may even have candidates running for governor this year under different political parties that may easily outnumber Republican candidates. So I think, you know, the Republican Party may have come and gone. Uh, and, and that may be sort of what we're experiencing. And I think so. So then what are the set of ideas that are going to organize themselves around where these new factions in politics are. And that's that's what's interesting to me. Countries heading towards $30 trillion in debt. And when I talk to different groups, I always ask the question, I said, well, what's a trillion? And the best way I've come up with trying to explain it is this, is to say that a million seconds is 12 days from now and a billion seconds is 32 years from now. And a trillion seconds is 32,000 years from now. And we're, we're heading towards $30 trillion in debt. I think it is a profoundly moral issue. I think it's generational theft. I think it's stealing the future of the country. You know, $30 trillion in debt is 900,000 years, almost enough time to get out of a Scientology contract, which is a lot of, a lot of time. What is it, though, that you – say is you talk about the reinvention of these principles in a way that is saleable, understandable, and connects with the lives of young women, millennials, people of color. How do we reintroduce these fundamentally important concepts about rectitude and probity and public conduct and fiscal responsibility and our obligation to make the country stronger for the generation of Americans who are not yet born. I don't know how we make that case because modern like conservatives have been trying to make that case for 20 years, 30 years and we thought that's why we were getting reelected and it turns out well, you know, turns out you can run and you can win as a Republican and you can not give a shit at all about turns reforming. Out, turns out they don't want to do any, any of it. Yeah, yeah, I mean and also by the way like yeah, I mean on Republican what? On the Republican I mean I asked Paul Ryan the other day um when you came to Washington in 1998, the debt was $5 trillion, And when you left, it was $21 trillion. Like, fiscal conservatism is, you know, like, was that a lie? <laughs> we weren't really serious. I mean, and in many ways, I think he'll have been seen as sort of a, a canary in the coal mine, but we didn't do anything about it. Does he consider himself a fiscal conservative? I mean, he's been a deficit hawk his whole life, right? Or at least he's self-identified as a deficit hawk. I think he does, right? But if 
Paul Ryan is a fiscal conservative, we're all screwed, <laughs> right? Like, because that because because it hasn't gotten us anything. I mean, we really it hasn't gotten us in any sustainable way. And I, I don't know the answer to your question, Steve. I don't know how we can persuade. We haven't been able to do it, right? On the and the Republican side hasn't been able to do it. The conservative movement hasn't been able to do it. But 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 it's correct. We do have a humongous debt that we're we're encumbering ourselves and our children and our children's children. And that is a moral responsibility. And we've completely abdicated our responsibility. And so that that has to be a pillar of sort of whatever comes next. And, and you know the kids get it. I mean, you pull the millennials and you pull this next the generation beyond it, Generation Z, they understand that they're not going to get these programs. They understand that you can't keep spending into ad infinitum that's on them. So I actually think there there's an opportunity for political resonance. I mean, I think those of us who have sort of been saying similar things for some time now about where the Republican Party and the conservative movement has gone astray uh, are right. And the moment is coming for us to sort of formulate around, I think, a real energy in the electorate that will get that. But we're we're a little early. When you look at the Democrats right now, I think it's increasingly clear that not only is the race in 2020 going to be a leapfrogging to the left contest. But the answer to Trumpism that they've come up with is dishonest progressivism. And it's manifested, I think, most directly right now by Cory Booker. Dishonest progressivism? Dishonest progressivism. That the federal government's going to give everyone a job. Federal government's going to pay for everyone's daycare. Everybody's education is going to forgive all the student loans. Free stuff for everybody every day ad infinitum as if that money grows on trees planted by the National Park Service. And so the answer for a reinvigorated sense of responsibility and conservatism, which is now completely vacant and absent from the Republican Party's what? In in the face of that, because we have – if you say in the state of California, for example, which has a – budget of $145 billion that I support the $450 billion annual single-payer program. I mean, how is that lie any different than the we're going to build a wall and have Mexico pay for it? Just two profoundly dishonest, delusional and they're political also, movements. They're also profoundly uncreative because they're mm-hmm. just rehashed over time. I mean, what the New Deal – with the progressive – that's no different than like – any of the ideas that came out of the Great Depression and the Great Society, right? Like the new, you, right? Forget the New Deal because it's Social Security and you you pay into it, you get something out, fine. But this idea that the federal government can spend infinitum to 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 pay out everybody's problems—that's not new, right? Like, well, how is that any different from Great Society programs, or how is that any different from just the the basic liberalism, frankly, that Bucky was fighting back against in the '60s that was so predominant that there was no argument against it, right? Like, um, so. The, the, but electorally speaking, I agree that's how they're going to run. Electorally speaking, you know, it's fascinating. I don't – I'm not persuaded that – first of all, forget the infighting in the Democratic Party. I'm not persuaded that those ideas are enough to codify their voters and get enough of them across the finish line. And so many of their voters aren't buying what they're selling anymore either. And they still – it's self-identified Democrats who had always voted for Democrats who are now Trump people. And they're they're in Ohio and they're in the, all the three states that Trump won by 78,000 votes, right? But there are enough of them still. And they're not buying the progressive line as an alternative to Trump because there's all these sort of cultural and economic 
resonance to Trump and what he's doing that it doesn't matter who comes along and says, I'll give you everything you want from the government. They're not for the government. They're for Trump. And so I have a hard time understanding how even if the Democratic Party were to unite around a progressive agenda, that that would mobilize enough people to actually win. Well, I think what you're nailing is this historical moment of fear about the radical transformation that's happening in the world and the lack of solutions that any policymaker has brought to the forefront. You look at the Democrats who turned and voted for Nixon because they wanted someone who was strong, someone who was tough, and that's why they stuck with him for so long throughout Watergate. And you look at You see the same thing with Obama supporters who ended up voting for Trump because they just wanted change and they wanted someone to upset the status quo. And right now, the Democrats aren't offering solutions. Republicans offer a bunch of lip service to traditional ideas and then go out and do exactly the opposite. And so I think that it is up to Republicans like us to put forward the radical ideas that are actually going to transform the government right now. I just don't know if that happens within uh, within the tent of the Republican Party. I mean, which I and by the way, I like agree. I, you know, I still, you know, it's a hard thing to say, right? We're tribal people, right? Like, um, but but I, I just practically I don't know if it happens. Like, I, I don't know if, if again, I think we've been overtaken by events and it may be sort of that's where that's where I think the energy and the excitement is in politics is trying to figure out how what the vehicle or the vessel is going to be for some of these ideas that, by the way, we're still right about. (laughs) Well, because it is corruption fundamentally that is holding back the progress of the government. And that's something that I am totally there with Trump supporters wanting to drain the swamp, to end the government cartel, all of that. But no one ever does that because they get in power and then they're going to just, you know, Raise the wheel for themselves. And so that's why perhaps it does have to be a third it's, party. It was unfathomably corrupt before Donald Trump was inaugurated and it's gone 10 levels above and beyond that. It's just it's just extraordinary. But you know, you think about the Democrats and you think about these working class voters in All Ohio the ones. and Michigan and Wisconsin, right? And, you know, just as was the case. I'm at joking. The, I don't think the, they're racist right, for the record. No, right. I mean, but right, just as was the case at the at the fall of the Soviet Union, right? For the first time in the history of the country, you see declining life expectancies for white men between forty and forty nine. You see a opioid epidemic well, that's, that's going to wipe out half a million people to seven hundred thousand people in ten years. We lost four hundred thousand people in the Second World War, and so the rhetoric of the Democratic Party to those voters, specifically in those states who haven't seen real wage increase in. 25 years is your white privilege. And imagine under the strain, under the stress of globalization, economic dislocation, when your life expectancy is falling to be indicted as a group and told everything is your fault. There's no words to the rage and anger and how pissed off these people are hearing that. And There's it's, Donald ex- Trump. Right, it's extraordinary to think about how the party of working people, the Democratic Party, I think John Kennedy and Harry Truman would roll over in their graves no, if they heard no the they, if they heard the rhetoric out of the Democratic Party today. There's no question. There's a real. I mean, that's the that's the. Everybody loves to fixate on the the civil war in the Republican Party, but I mean, that's the fundamental problem that the left has, and you can't beat Trump with nothing, right? Are their voters racist, or are did they forget the white working class? Which is it? Because um, that's that they can't figure that out, and the truth is, 
if they don't have a policy, economic policies or any sort of agenda to capture the imagination of those voters, those self-identified Democrats who voted for Obama twice and who came to Trump, they're not going to win. I talked to Dennis Kucinich over the weekend. This is fascinating, right? Like tip of the spear of the progressive movement, right? Like he was progressive before, like, I mean, like how three decades before Bernie Sanders even tried to capture the imagination of these new progressive socialist kids. And he just lost a primary campaigning in Ohio for governor. Dennis Kucinich's voters, those voters, the Bernie voters, they are all Trump people now. He could not persuade them with single payer, with any kind of, you know, the trade deals, the getting out of the wars, all every he amplified and embodied to them and campaigned as a progressive candidate for governor to all of the people who have supported him since he was mayor in Cleveland. He could not bring them back over from Trump because they're not Republicans now. They're for Trump. He has lost. I mean, that is that is the bellwether. That's the canary in the coal mine. If Dennis Kucinich can't get his progressive voters back in Ohio, it's over, folks. Yeah, because, you know, Kucinich, right, typifies the old politics you're talking about that was defined by this vertical line through the middle of the field, a 50-yard line in our politics. Now, we debated hyperbolically and stupidly, you know, between the 45-yard lines. If you listen to the rhetoric of the two campaigns that I was involved in, apparently the delta between a just and an unjust society is the difference between the Democrats' preferred Mm -hmm. Mm 39.6% top marginal tax rate and the Republican 35%. Totally. But the new line, and we're seeing this in Europe too, is a horizontal line. It's an above the line, below the line. And what unites Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump is their indictment of the people above the line is playing by a different set of rules that they wrote at the expense of everybody below the line who's getting screwed and paying for it. Right. And by the way, they're not wrong. Right. They're not wrong. That's the thing. Right. You can't blame them. They're not wrong. And like. Everybody was playing, as you said, between the 45 years. They were wrong, right? We were all caught up in our own, um, you know, there is there is a bubble. There is the, you know, there's a lot to Charles Murray's, right, the coming apart, right, the sort of um, class of, of people who between the coasts and between the and the Excel Corridor, um, you know, haven't haven't gotten out to figure out why why people are struggling, and why it's hurting. And it's sort of the, the – this is why – like the epiphany of hillbillyology, like struck New York so strong. Trillion, right? like, trillion dollar, trillion dollar bailout for the bankers. Yeah. No one goes to jail. Everybody gets their eight-figure bonuses. Thirteen million American families get foreclosed oh, on. No small number with a deputy sheriff showing up on the front porch saying you have forty-five minutes to have all your shit on the curb. Twelve million Americans lose their jobs. Ten years on, it's still the defining political issue of our of our of our time and in in neither party but in particular the conservative movement has had any answers and remedies and and you know i think everybody wants to feel seen and heard and we have the entire middle of the country where this opioid epidemic is raging it is so and, huge and, and, so and this is and this like is revealed as a national news story 18 months ago yeah. We figure it out when this has been developing for 10 years. It's extraordinary. I'll give you one more on that. Um, so you know, we did this first firing line episode on poverty, 
And because the very first firing line that William F. Buckley ever recorded was about poverty. It was with Michael Harrington, who is the avowed socialist who wrote The Other Side, which every Berkeley student in the 1960s read. And it was the he was the individual who really got to Kennedy and persuaded him to, to do the war on poverty when Kennedy was assassinated. LBJ took it up. They created the war on poverty. So so um, our first show was on poverty. We did Paul Ryan's poverty plan. Um, Paul Ryan, of course, did his poverty plan because he had this terrible makers and takers comment in the in the 2012 election. And then so he goes on this sort of Paul on the road to Damascus conversion moment and then starts visiting inner cities, creates this sort of poverty plan. Opioids is not mentioned once in it, right? There is, there is, it's all urban poor. There's nothing about the world, right? So this is the conserv- the sort of leading conservative icon of 2016 creates this plan about how to reach out to poverty, and it, none of it is white rural poverty. None of it is none of it is sort of the circumstances that have propelled us to the circumstance, the place where we are. So uh, we've missed a lot, and and that's on public policymakers and electeds, and and so you know we get we all get what we deserve a little bit, right? So it's it's up to any sense of um, sort of thinkers who are going to think through. How are we going to answer the questions for the, the challenges for the 21st century and the next generation? Um, we, we have to have policy solutions for everybody. And uh, and you, you can't sort of leave out a broad swath of the middle of America that's suffering because, thank God, we have a representative democracy and they can make their voices heard. Let's talk for a minute about the legacy of the 31st president of the United States. One of the great humanitarians of the 20th century – the relief efforts after the First World War in Europe. What is it that you want this generation of Americans to know about President Hoover? A lot. Hard to know where to start because while everybody knows about the four years that he was president, many don't know about the, you know, the 88 other years that um, were marked by not just humanitarian achievement, but also huge diplomatic achievements, um, uh, political achievements, achievements in statesmanship, achievements, frankly, in engineering. But I have always thought that for a millennial generation, for an ethos that cares about serving the world, that is globally oriented, um, that is sort of founded in a sense of volunteerism and commitment to communities um, while still sort of being individualist, right? That, that he, you know, his term was American individualism is the sense that even though we're, we're about, our, you know, this country is founded around the individual, that sense of individualism is very different here than in other parts of the world because it is founded in a sense of service to community and connectedness, that, that paradox of sort of being individuals, but also individuals in the context of service. And I think there's an ethos about Hoover and how he lived his life, which led him to these extraordinary humanitarian achievements, which are completely unknown. Um, and under underrated. I mean, you've just mentioned them, but not many people know them. And we say generation from starvation. Um, Hoover kept a third of Europe alive between 1914 and 1921, like a third of the population of Europe, between not just Belgium, you're right, Lisa, about Belgium, um, but he he was the first individual, as a private individual and a private citizen, to organize international humanitarian food relief that that did deploy the resources to feed an entire nation throughout the course of World War I. Um, and he did that, th- literally, a private organization that he was responsible for financially, and fidu- he had all the fiduciary responsibility called the... Uh, CRB, the Commission for the Relief of Belgium, right, which had its own navy, it had its own flags, it had its own powers of immunity, it had its own ability to negotiate with warring powers, um, create treaties. He was the only individual who was able to cross the lines, both of the lines, between the Allies, German and the English, throughout the course of the war, even after America got in. He watched the Battle of the Somme from a German outpost. As an individual citizen watching the imminent starvation of an entire country felt that it was 
he was uniquely qualified in position to be able to organize food relief, and he was. He was an international mining engineer. He was shipping products and materials around the globe from six to four to five different continents at the outbreak of the war. So he had the logistical expertise. He had the, um, frankly, the, the commercial contacts to be able to buy mass amounts of wheat from Argentina and get them on boats and then have them delivered to Rotterdam and then distributed uh, amongst uh, Belgian volunteers down sort of a canal system, a very complicated canal system to have them milled and then distributed into breads and and by um, into sort of like 2,500 Belgium towns by December of 1914. And, and the, the nation of Belgium essentially didn't starve because of Hoover's efforts, which then he went on and did for the, the Bolsheviks as well, even though he hated Lenin because um, he didn't feel that uh, starving your enemy was the way to win a war. And, and Herbert Hoover defeated, of course, by Franklin Roosevelt in 1932 – but he wasn't done serving his country yet because FDR asked him to serve. Actually, FDR didn't. FDR said, I'm not Jesus Christ. I will not raise Herbert Hoover <laughs> from the dead. But as soon as FDR was I, – the indignity – I mean, Hoover to this day don't feel particularly warmly about the Roosevelt's because FDR really did uh, dine out on Hoover and for political purposes – continued to blame the Depression on Hoover and personalize it in a way that had never been done in American politics before and hasn't been done since. I mean, Hoovervilles were an aberration of the Democratic Party as funded by FDR by a guy named Charlie Michelson. They personalized this economic calamity in my great-grandfather's name. Every, you know, there were uh, an inside-out pocket was called a Hoover flag. Um, the Hoover, you know, the 10 cities that were made out of newspapers were, you know, as we call Hoovervilles, there were, there were a series of images that were connected with, you know, the economic deprivation of the Great Depression that were connected personally to my great-grandfather's name that FDR did as a political ploy to keep, you know, because the, the economy tanked out even worse in 1936 than it did in 1932 and 1933, right? But the, he had to keep it going. And and Hoover felt it was beneath him to fight back. And that's on him. But because of the indignity, I think that Harry Truman felt that FDR had put Hoover through. Harry Truman, within days of becoming president, wrote a handwritten note to my great-grandfather inviting him to the Oval Office to discuss the European food situation because they knew as they were coming towards the end of World War II, there would be a humanitarian and food crisis and that Hoover had, was the only one with the expertise that would be able to help. And so it was Harry Truman who brought Hoover back in. And then Hoover had an essentially a very public life from 1945 until he died in 1964. Um, and that's because of Harry Truman um, and, of course, Dwight Eisenhower and people who followed him. The Kennedys also, um, Hoover and Joe Kennedy, were very, very close. And so the Kennedys always took and made a point of coming to visit Herbert Hoover in New York. But he did have a public life and, and a lot of public service, two uh, commissions to reorganize the federal government in the Eisenhower years called the Hoover Commissions, um, as well as... Uh, you know, really being a renowned and respected statesman for the last 20 years of his life. Thanks not at all to FDR, but entirely to the Democrats that succeeded him. Thanks so much for joining us today, Margaret. We look forward to tuning in to Firing Line. And one final word. I try to stay out of the predictions business in politics, but unfortunately, I'm pretty confident on this one. Today, corruption is the American experiment's greatest political liability. Because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. Richard Nixon was at least right on one count. The American people deserve to know whether or not their president is a crook. 
Yet Nixon was a third-rate burglar compared to this motley crew of grifters. Elaine, taken together, the sons, the daughter, the son-in-law, give the appearance of a White House that is at least partially a family business. According to the disclosures, Trump and Kushner earned at least $82 million from investments and businesses outside the White House. The president still owns and profits from his company. The hotel, which he's visited five times since becoming president, is just blocks from the White House. That is on top of the meetings that Kushner reportedly took at the White House with the heads of financial groups that then gave his family more than half a billion bucks in loans last year. Trump's corruption means political paralysis when it comes to new and innovative government policy to actually solve the pressing problems our country faces, whether it's access to health care or the opiate epidemic or wage stagnation. That's because corruption is an avalanche. The president's own behavior seems to have encouraged a Hunger Games of sorts for the most blatantly corrupt Trump official award. Another Trump official facing questions for chartering private planes with taxpayer funds. Donald Trump promised us he'd drain the swamp in Washington. But under EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt, the swamp is worse than ever. This morning, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin is under investigation for trips on costly jets with American taxpayers footing the bill. Also under review, why he requested a government jet for his honeymoon. The New York Times reports that while the Department of Housing and Urban Development was planning to cut programs for the homeless, elderly, and the poor, it spent $31,000 on a new dining set for Secretary Ben Carson's office. There is news this morning of another cabinet secretary spending thousands of dollars on private air travel. In a statement, Price admitted, I was not sensitive enough to my concern for the taxpayer. So this means life continues to get worse in America for the forgotten men and the forgotten women who had hoped Trump would be different, and for those men and women around the world whose lives happen to intertwine with the interest of the Trump orbit. America's foreign policy is now openly driven by what's good for the Trump and Kushner family business interest, which isn't exactly the national interest. None of this is hidden. It's all in plain sight, which is perhaps why it's even more disturbing. Money is the only language Donald Trump can truly understand. It's all that matters to him. Because I don't need anybody's money. It's nice. I don't need anybody's money. I'm using my own money. I'm not using the lobbyists. I'm not using donors. I don't care. I'm really rich. Money influences everything with Donald Trump. It influences how he sees the world. People think I don't like China. I love China. The largest bank in the world is a tenant of mine in Trump Tower. Africa has tremendous business potential. I have so many friends going to your countries trying to get rich. It influences where he sends American troops to fight and die. As far as Syria is concerned, uh, our primary mission in terms of uh, that was getting rid of ISIS. We've almost completed that task and we'll be making a decision very quickly in coordination with others in the area uh, as to what we'll do. Saudi Arabia, Uh, is uh, very interested in our decision. And I said, well, you know, you want us to say maybe you're going to have to pay. Listening to that, you hear Donald Trump saying that he does not believe that having U.S. troops in Syria is actually in the national interest, but he's willing to keep them there if the Saudis want to pay for our sons and daughters to die for the Saudi national interest. My faith in the Constitution is whole. It is complete. It is total. And I am not going to sit here and be an idle spectator to the diminution, the subversion, the destruction of the Constitution. 
just as the long national nightmare of Watergate ushered in dozens of new campaign reforms, perhaps in the aftermath of Trumpism, candidates for president will be required to release their tax returns. Those who assume the office will be required to divest their personal holdings, and their family, friends, and associates will be legally barred from profiting off of the presidency. But it will take congressional will and congressional action, as well as the electorate, the people, demanding that we hold them accountable. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Unfortunately, we will have to awaken from this nightmare before we can begin to move forward. Thank you for listening to Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.